This is an example of speech. All our history Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. A free from oversight and free of charge, thoughtfully improvised, expletive deleted, details expanded, whistle blow hard, evergreen topical heat wave of an ongoing conversation, turned podcast, in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. Listen to the archives, go to stoneduckmedia.com or tell me what to think. You can contact us at tmwttpod at gmail.com. I'm producer Pete. You can contact me on Twitter at Bloated Nemesis. And your host is Charles Minnick, who is on Twitter at Green underscore Weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. This episode, Charles speaks with candidate for congressional office from New Jersey's 10th district, John Flora. Prepare to get righteous and reactionary. This is Tell Me What to Think. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. I'm Charles Minnick, your host as always, and with me tonight is John Flora. Uh, John, tell me what you think about New Jersey's 10th. Well, I have a lot of mixed feelings about New Jersey's 10th, but first of all, I want to say, Charles, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight, and it's, it's an absolute honor to talk about this district where I've spent my entire life, uh, 40 years. So a, a couple of quick things about the 10th. I mean, I'll just start with uh, diversity by myriad factors like uh, wealth, by household income, by race, by class, religion and creed, uh, political ideology, um, and even just the shape through uh, gerrymandering. The, the district looks like a giant Y, you know, if you're looking in from a map. Yeah, it so, looks like a giant with boots trying to dance. Something like that. <laughs> so. So that's just a little bit about the district, you know, looking in. Um, I know it as a public school teacher and a father and a married man uh, who's lived in two different cities in the district, Bayonne and Jersey City. Uh, and I live also in a waterfront community. I should also maybe start with that because that was the beginning of me understanding what this district was all about and beginning to understand who my representative was or who my representative wasn't uh, in practicality and feeling like um, anybody who lives through a natural disaster should be able to you know, reach out to local government or federal government for help and know who those people are and what role they're playing and all that. So uh, that's just a, a little snapshot of you know, the district as I see it. Um, well, I guess the, I'll start with the question I always do. Uh, what does the Green New Deal mean for your district? I know you've done a lot of work with uh, shoreline remediation, and obviously I can't imagine any. there's a limit on the dollars that could be spent on that. Sure. That's a really packed question, and um, I think it's very important for somebody like me in a district like NJ10 to be careful how much I put uh, climate change and a Green New Deal at the top of the platform without explaining that to constituents. Uh, joblessness in NJ10 is is 
a very serious concern, especially when we look at cities like Newark, uh, where the joblessness rate is, you know, twice the national average. And although strides have been made to improve the district in that area, I think when a lot of people hear the Green New Deal, they don't off the top of their head think about, you know, massive job creation, 20 right. million jobs that would disproportionately help uh, a city like Newark, New Jersey, as we, you know, transition away from fossil fuel. So I, I think that's really important that we uh, support initiatives like that, but we also educate people about initiatives like that so they don't take on misleading. Right. Show that it's more about than tax regulations and changes to code. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And as far as the environmental impact goes, NJ10 has areas of the district that are frontline climate change communities. I'm talking about Bayonne, New Jersey. I'm talking about the west side of Jersey City, the east side of Newark. Um, massive damage was done during Hurricane Sandy uh, just outside of our district in areas like uh, Hoboken and downtown Jersey City because of, you know you had the, the business, the financial waterfront there. But if we just look at like the, the threat to life and sustainability and then the way things are done, we had a we had a natural disaster on the west side of Jersey City. I, I literally saw cars being swept down the street and trees being uh, root rocked, meaning they were in a, uh, a state after the hurricane passed that uh, we had, I think, 50 to 100 trees in our community. They had to be removed just because the root systems were unstable. So. When I tell you we live through a natural disaster in our, you know, very populated, dense community here where I live on the waterfront, it really was. No electricity for nine days. And, and that was scary. So for me, that was the wake-up call. And, and that's why I prioritized a Green New Deal because it's, it's the economic job stimulator. It changes the tax code. But it also really head-on combats climate change with a, with a sense of resiliency that no other resolution has done thus far. And I think our goal moving into this next Congress, this next presidential cycle, is going to be to support um, not only the presidential candidates that talk Green New Deal like Bernie Sanders, but but to ensure that the Congress down ballot is going to be, you know, behind him as well. So that's kind of where I stand on the Green New Deal. Okay. Um, what do you think your most important issue is then that you address to so, your constituents? Yeah. So by far it's climate change, but but I would first start. You know, climate change is the what. Um, I like to talk about the how because none of this is possible unless we really address how somebody can get elected to Congress and actually make some substantive change uh, behind a presidential candidate that they believe in and an agenda they believe in and are willing to support. So the how for me is really campaign finance reform and publicly funded elections. When we talk about, uh, you know, especially people in Hudson County where I've, I'm from and I've grown up my whole life. It's impossible to compete with a machine if you can't show on paper that you're raising money. I just recently had the New Jersey Globe come after me. Uh, they called me a candidate on life support because my fourth quarter only raised, you know, between two and three thousand dollars for the quarter. And I, I also I countered that with, yeah, but we had twice as many small individual contributions in the small quarter than we did in the third quarter when, you know, when we first just announced. So for us, it's exciting that. $1 donations are pouring in, $5 donations are pouring in from around the country and from college students and such and people who can't give more than that. Um, and it's just, it's so unfortunate that the media, the machine, public perception has this feeling that, well, if that's all you're going to raise, then you're on life support. There's no, no way somebody like you is a viable candidate. So we can't put our hopes and dreams in someone like that. 
And what I would counter with is this, you know, social media has changed digital strategy. It's, it's given it an overhaul. Candidates like, like myself and other grassroots activists on the front lines like Hector Oseguera, Zenas Pazakis, we don't need to raise a million dollars to be competitive because we have the ability to leverage digital strategy in ways that have never been seen prior to Obama and Donald Trump era. So uh, in a very exciting way, I'll end all of this to say the how has completely changed and how we can become a viable candidate um, is no longer the way it used to be. So before we could talk about, you know, bold Green New Deal initiatives and such, mm-hmm. I think it's important that we say we are viable candidates because of how we can fundraise and be competitive in the game to get our messaging out there. So I, I hope that that's clear that actually the campaign finance is more important than the Green New Deal because it's the how, the how, how all of this can uh, change fundamentally. Yeah. Uh, sure, I'm sure is a... Uh... You're a STEAM teacher? Am I reading that correctly? Yes. So a lot of people aren't sure what STEAM is. Um, have you ever heard of STEAM, Charles, Not exactly. Or? I've I have some experience in education, but that was overseas. Gotcha. Okay. So STEAM is very similar to STEM education, only you add the A in the middle for the arts, which is kind of like the vehicle to move STEM education along and... Um, basically promote STEM education in a fun and exciting way that engages all students, especially those who are, you know, geared more towards uh, the arts, uh, you know, whether it's visual or performing. I myself, I am a music specialist. That is my uh, certification as a public school teacher in New Jersey. So I have a music education degree, but through science training and uh, summer Honeywell Institute um, for ecosystem trainings over the last few summers, I've been able to broaden my scope, not only as a music educator, but as somebody who can use the arts as the vessel to get a, uh, a climate change or a uh, combined sewage overflow in a municipality message across, or a tree mapping message, or a uh, carbon sequestration uh, science initiative. You know, we're mapping out our school grounds and how the trees absorb uh, runoff water and they sequester carbon. So those are the kinds of topics that we can make exciting to the public through songwriting initiatives, through, you know, graffiti art, through painting walls on our school grounds with uh, moss. Um, so it's, it's, it's really just a way to add the arts into STEM education and make the messaging more palatable for uh, the audience, you know? So okay. I'm a proud STEAM educator, yes. So I don't mean to interrupt, but how, is there any place where we can listen to that music online? There sure is. Uh, so we have a YouTube channel that's amassed um, a little over a thousand followers. And it's mostly former students who just want to come back and watch their old videos from middle school and high school. And uh, the, the title of the YouTube channel is Mr. Flores Classroom. And on that YouTube channel, you'll see a few of our uh, classroom and school-wide initiatives, especially as they relate to STEAM projects and the songwriting that the students have done in, in recent years. Huh, that's exciting. Thanks a lot. Um, well, uh, so what exactly... A lot of people are talking about campaign fundraising reform, but what exactly is your proposal? Our proposal is very simple. It starts with comparing candidates by where they accept money and then comparing what they accept to their platform. I'll give you a couple of very practical examples. My opponent is Donald Payne Jr. He is the son of a congressman who sat in the NJ10 chair for 23 years, Donald Payne Sr., and he inherited the seat from his father in 2012 
and has had the seat since. So if you combine dad and son, they've had the seat for 31 years. So one of the first things I looked at straight ahead was, how is Donald Payne Jr. fundraising? And who is he taking money from? And how does that connect to his platform? I'll give you a very clear example of how it's contradictory. And I'm trying to make this as public as possible so that constituents themselves can see you know, what his agenda really is based on money and what his agenda is that he, he speaks about, he publicizes. Uh, recently, Comcast was involved in trying to undo legislation that was passed 160 years ago, approximately, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Right? It protected against racial discrimination. Comcast just challenged that Civil Rights Act. And it was basically a uh, gentleman, Byron Allen, I believe was the name, and he's a um, He's like a media mogul, and he was trying to get his channels to be placed on Comcast. And there were other less popular channels that were instead put on Comcast. And he tried to make a case against Comcast along the lines of you know, racial discrimination through the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> In short, uh, I believe Comcast was being sued for $20 billion. Holy and cow. the case, I believe it's going to evolve in lower courts at this point. But the, the case is still, to some degree, open. And what I'd like to look at then is, all right, well, where does Donald Payne Jr., my opponent, stand with Comcast and money? And in this election cycle, he just took $3,500 of Comcast donation money. So for me, I think it's important that constituents in a majority black NJ10 district understand the ramifications of this legal challenge that Comcast and Byron Allen are bringing to the Supreme Court. And also understand that their, and I'm going to use the words of Ayanna Presley, their black voice is being muted by the money that he's taking from Comcast. Ayanna Presley uh, out of Massachusetts, she's a representative. She recently said, we don't need more black faces at the table. We need more black voices at the table. And she was referring to the Congressional Black Caucus, of which uh, Mr. Donald Payne Jr. is a member. So to me, that is fundamentally how we're going to challenge uh, how campaign finance and how issues align or misalign. I'll give you one more quick example, and I think it kind of makes the drives the point home about let's focus on where their money's coming from and how it aligns or misaligns. Donald Payne Jr. also took in this election cycle six thousand dollars, to my knowledge, from fossil fuel companies, five thousand from Phillips sixty six, and a thousand dollars from Exxon. And these were recent contributions, and these are PAC contributions. So in short. He's a PAC man. 98% of his money comes from PACs and large contributions, defined by the FEC as anything between $200 and $2,800. And the money he's taking does not align with his uh, public persona and what his constituents expect him to be. So I hope that kind of outlines what our plan is regarding finance and how we take money and how he takes money and how it doesn't align with who we say we are. Sure, he seems like a pretty absent con congressman. Yeah, so we get into attendance. He has the absolute worst uh, New Jersey delegation attendance when it comes to roll call votes. Uh, and I think that that's important also for constituents who say, I've never met him, I never see him. You know, we're door knocking now, we're canvassing 17 different municipalities around the district, and 99% of the people on the train platforms and on the doorsteps don't even know who their congressman is. They don't know that 
this is a junior who inherited a seat. They thought it was senior or they've never met him before. So it's absolutely incredible to us that this is the kind of district we're serving, that most are unengaged and uninformed about who their congressman is or have never been contacted by their congressman, not to mention his uh, absenteeism on Capitol Hill. So that is a, that is a significant issue for us. Oh, wow. Um, well, I guess uh, what would be your second most important issue for your constituents? Uh, you know, coming at this through the lens of education, I would definitely say that improving public education would definitely be one of my top, if not the second biggest issues. Um, you know, there is no blank check when it comes to financing public education. I, I remember hearing that at Teachers College, Columbia University, a few semesters ago. And um, so we have to think about if, if public education is kind of like this great unfunded mandate, um, and we have to also admit that education is not a constitutional right. Uh, it's been brought up before in the Supreme Court in the 70s, and it's still thought of as not a constitutional right. So, so with that perspective and with the greatest unfunded mandate before us, which is special education, uh, we look at these things and say, what are our values and priorities as a nation? And if there isn't enough money to do what we need to in public education, and we don't have the public will to do that, and our politicians still and our legal system still hasn't found the will to call education a right and to invest heavily in it to bring the United States uh, up to par with our international counterparts, then why can't we say, let's find where the return on investment is going to be greatest in public education and with the limited amount of money we have? And by the way, I am not, I'm not uh, succumbing to that reality. I'm just saying if, if this is what the reality is in a Congress with limited discretionary money, then why don't we double down on early childhood education and ideas that are progressive like universal pre-K and making sure that every child before they hit kindergarten, they are school ready and they have comparable uh, numbers of words uh, that they, they've been exposed to and that they're almost as uh, literate as one another and they've, they've had similar opportunities for social experiences to be um, near school ready. I think that raising, raising children up to a, an equitable level is, is most important when we talk about if there's limited educational money that should be our priority because it shows that children that enter school uh, at similar levels will have a similar uh, life trajectory of mm -hmm. success as it relates to um, education achievement and growth. Right, so, and um, individual attainment. So you're basically talking about a expanded Head Start, for lack of a better term. <laughs> there it is, expanding Head Start and universal pre-K. Perfect. And also helping parents be on board with that too. Right. informing and educating parents who need a little bit of extra help to learn how to be good uh, parents to get their children ready for school. So Right, and parental leave with everything else. Exactly. Um, I assume you're down with most of the other left-wing pr proposals, like universal health care. For sure, single-payer, yep. yeah. Housing, affordable mm -hmm. housing, uh, immigration reform, you know, um, what just happened this week was, was pretty awful. Uh, I think Susan Welber, I just read a quote from her. She's with the Legal Aid Society. She was talking about um, the Supreme Court. You know, they just, they, uh, the public charge that was issued on mm -hmm. Monday. Yeah. Uh, she opined, and I'll use her words, 
Our government is trying to exclude as unworthy and unwelcome anyone who is predicted to receive even a small amount of food, health, or housing assistance at any point. And then I, you know, I kind of opine on social media, like, whatever happened to those, those words on the uh, Statue of Liberty, like, we'll accept, you know, you're right. weary and you're poor and the huddle together. So to mm -hmm. me, immigration reform, that is what is changing rapidly as we're distracted with other big issues like the impeachment trial. Uh, and what's going on, you know, with kind of a circus right now in the White House. And I, I don't want this president to keep the progress going backwards right now too much. I think we need to stay on top of that. They right. see that happening quickly. Yeah, yeah between that and the uh, increasing ban list, it's like the golden door is just being shut, which is, I, I guess, well, I can't understate how much of an immigrant nation that we are. And it, this is basically a full frontal assault on our ideals. Yep, yep, well said. Um, so Newark's water crisis, uh, I know the Green New Deal is talking about lead replacement, but is that going to be enough to solve the, the increasingly problematic water that the city is suffering? Uh, embedded in the Green New Deal, it's a lot of talk about infrastructure, and I like that, you know, it's not just job and it's not climate change resiliency, it's, it's also infrastructure, which is antiquated. Uh, I am one of those nj10 residents who is fearful every time i put my daughter in a bath who's she's two years old by the way and i i'm fearful that she's going to ingest some of the water while she's playing with her toys and you know we're literally right across the hackensack from newark new jersey uh, i've had some chance to spend some time with the newark water coalition um and it's i think it's fascinating how the public perception through what the government and the media is telling is that the lead crisis is on its way to being fixed, that we have filters being distributed, uh, we have bottled water that can be picked up, and all is well in Newark. Uh, and then you talk to the founder of the Water Coalition, Anthony uh, Ruiz, I believe, um, and then he tells you things like, I'm in, I'm in Michigan this week talking about what's actually going on in Newark, that water levels are far exceeding uh, federal levels and, you know, limits. Mm -hmm. And the situation is actually worse than Flint, Michigan in certain areas of Newark. And the worst part is that they're trying to lead a, an education campaign to explain to residents that you can be affected and you are in a bad area. And if you misuse a filter, it actually makes the filter not work right anymore. If you turn, for example, if you run hot water through a water filter for too long, it actually can make certain types of filters not work properly anymore. And this is the type of education that many Newarkans need to be receiving right now. And it's, it's almost like this massive cover-up, like efforts have been made to give out filters and the problems being corrected. Um, the federal government, through Trump and Cory Booker, just allocated maybe, I think it was $100 million to get this infrastructure project up and moving. Essex County facilitated a $130 million loan to get the infrastructure up and moving. So these projects should be done in the near future. But what, what people on the ground are saying, like, until this happens in a few years, residents, you know, they aren't really aware that not all filters are working the way they should be and that uh, children can be exposed to harmful and permanently de deleterious uh, effects of lead in the water that they ingest. So. Uh, it really is a crisis, and the worst part is so many people don't realize it is. You know, where they're donating the campaign water to the Newark Water Coalition and trying to give out a little bit and help 
with ShopRite distributions to the Newark Water Coalition. But the work is many and the workers are few. Uh, and that's that's the best way I could summarize it. It's, just, it's hard to watch. Well, it sounds like a miseducation campaign in some yes, respects. Yes, it does, Charles. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, it's such a huge problem, like literally everywhere. I can't. Mm, it boggles me that there's no political will to do more about it. And especially the political will when the information is given out initially by experts. Right, you can't cover something that serious up for two or three years. Yeah, and as much respect as I have for Ross Baraka, right, the mayor of Newark, I, I still can't let that one go. That this information has been uh, resounding now for a few years, and we're down in Trenton two years ago with the Green Party candidate for governor, Seth Copperdale, and we're bringing this information out to public light, and uh, nobody in Newark is talking about it. So it's that's very frustrating on the ground, you know? What would what could possibly be a more important issue than the water supply? Hmm. I don't know, Charles, at this point. <laughs> and that's why <laughs> that's why we're running. People say, why would a teacher from Jersey City with little name ID and little bit of money would even challenge this? And well, if you have the right idea, you should be able to win, right? <laughs> <laughs> we would hope so, you know? Uh, so, I guess let's talk horse race. Uh, your opponent is never lost by, like, less than 80% in the, the general. It seems yeah. like a, like so many other districts that I've uh, interviewed, the general or the primary election is actually important. And even there, he's never lo- never gotten less than, what, 80%? Yes. Hmm. So that's, that's a conservative estimate, I think. It's, it's usually a little higher than that. Um we have a thing in New Jersey here called the line, and it, it lends such an extreme advantage to anybody who's placed on it through county bosses. Uh, sometimes the bosses are higher up the state level, even the, the national level, with what Nancy Pelosi is doing with blacklisting anybody who helps insurgent candidates. <laughs> it's frustrating to be, be off of that line, but I think what's interesting is what's happening right here in New Jersey is we're creating this like alternate line, and we have counties like Hunterton County that are stepping outside of the box and going out on a, a courageous limb and saying, hey, we're going to have an open primary. We're going to let our county committee people decide who our presidential nominee should be, not a few party bosses behind closed doors. So we're hoping that a few other counties uh, jump on the bandwagon and, and do away with this line and this backdoor dealing in New Jersey. Um, and with all of that, you know, I'll just quickly reference Donald Payne Jr. I don't think he's had a credible candidate challenger in any of the cycles that he's running you know recall he inherited the seat it was like a special election and from what i saw it was somebody locally in jersey city with little name id who kind of had a a criminal record behind him and a little bit of fundraising if any money he reported at all and i just kind of felt like it was a, a last minute attempt to just put a name on the ballot so our campaign started you know last uh Jan, I'm sorry, last June. So we've been at this for a little over six months. And, you know, we, in my opinion, we put an organized campaign together with a strategy to meet tens and thousands of constituents. And although the fundraising uh, strategy might not seem uh, robust to anybody looking in on the outside, it's, it's intentionally small donations. And we're doing things kind of the way we planned from the get-go. So I think Payne is feeling like a real challenger to cycle. And especially with our... Uh, social media presence and our events that we have organized throughout the district and with this national movement uh, you know not me us and Bernie Sanders and this this people-powered 
unpolitician kind of movement that's that's stimulating other progressives to get on ballots. Uh, I think some of that's spilling over into New Jersey and NJ10, and people are a little bit more awake and they they're looking at federal elections, especially with the impeachment and Donald Trump, uh, mm. and they want to know who their representative is. So I think Donald Payne is to say he's going to get 80 percent this cycle is I don't think it's realistic. I think more people are going to turn out, and I think. Um, mm have a credible challenge. So. Yeah, let's hope uh, not many people agree with him that impeachment's his biggest priority. <laughs> Good point. Um, so it sounds like you have a pretty robust campaign. As you say, it's not necessarily the amount of donations, but the people power. Are you uh, pulling in volunteers? Great question. So we've we've publicized a public counter now, um, calendar, sorry, for I'd say the last four months. Uh, it drew in a few house parties all around the district, and I, I say house parties, meaning like complete strangers who found us through a, a website or through social media or through digital ads we were running to micro-target certain areas. Awesome. And how cool is it when you get invited to a house party where the people there know a lot about you and you know nothing about them, and they're asking you questions directly related to your platform, uh, directly related to this race, and you turn it into an opportunity to educate them about the district and who your opponent is and how they've been misrepresented. So uh, I could definitely say we've had a lot of engagement through social media and running ads. Regarding volunteers, I don't think any candidate ever feels like they have enough volunteers. But again, when you have complete strangers signing up to meet you on a train platform at rush hour, uh, and we call those efforts uh, train vising because uh, we're canvassing on a yeah we're canvassing on a train platform and it's rush hour and it's about high volume and just quick introductions. True. Um, and I think we've picked up a few college students along the way from Montclair State and Rutgers University. And they just show up there and they're like, hey, I read your platform. So great to meet you. I got an hour. I'll help give out some literature. And those, those are the folks that turn into like your regulars. You know, they come back from break and they want to help again. And they're helping inform digital strategy. I, I have a young man right now who we found that way who is actually running our digital ads right now. He kind of took over that job uh, himself. And it, it's so exciting when you meet somebody as a stranger online through a website, and now all of a sudden they're running digital strategy. So it's uh, to, to answer the question briefly, it's, yeah, we're having good turnout in unexpected ways, you know, as far as volunteers go. So. And train this thing. That's an interesting, uh, I guess, innovation. Are you any doing anything else that's, uh, I guess, irregular? Yeah, it's got to be a guerrilla strategy at this point, right? Yeah, it's definitely uh, some guerrilla warfare going on. And it, to us, it's exciting. We couple canvassing, which is high volume, just superficial hellos, you know, meet and greet, get the face, get the name, with some more in-depth uh, residential canvassing in high voter turnout areas. Because what we're trying to do is ensure that the, those who do come out to vote know who we are, they know what's at stake, and we're, we're spending some quality time really talking to them about the issues in their neighborhood, showing the face. And as somebody who studied uh, political management at the uh, master's level, I know that voter contact is the number one uh, proven method of, you know, getting voter traction and uh, getting turnout. So, you know, we're trying to combine effort of superficial canvassing, residential, uh, and the digital strategy and micro-targeting with the ads. So we're hoping to get some good bang for the buck despite uh, what people are looking at might think otherwise. Um, are you doing any voter registration efforts? Absolutely. So combined with the door knocking and the canvassing, we always have voter ID forms. Uh, we're also doing uh, getting our petition signatures 
two of those efforts as well. So it's a combined effort. Any chance to get one or two or uh, three things done, you know, while we're out there meeting folks, we do. We get it done. Awesome. Uh, well, I guess uh, thank you, John, for coming on the podcast. I won't take up any more of your valuable time. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. And, uh, um, I look forward to listening. All right. Um, hopefully you can be on again before the primary. I appreciate that very much, John. Right. Thank you, John. Break your chains.